Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Katherine Harlow, Domestic and Sexual Violence Counselor for Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, Sam Carrico, Volunteer and Partner Services Supervisor with the Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Program in the Department of Family Services, Children, Youth, and Families Division, and Michelle Thames, former Executive Director of Safe Spot Children's Advocacy Center. And we'll discuss the best ways to support children who have been sexually assaulted. Catherine, Sam, Michelle, thanks for being here on Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kendra. So sexual abuse obviously happens to people of all ages, including, sadly, children and teenagers. This can have a negative impact on them both physically and emotionally when the abuse happens and in the future. But children and teens who experience sexual abuse can and do heal if they get appropriate support. So, Catherine, I'm going to start with you. Let's define sexual abuse. It's not just rape, correct? No. So there are a lot of different things that can fall under the category of sexual abuse. So when we think about sexual abuse, we think of any type of unwanted sexual contact. Um, So that does include rape, but it also includes other things like non-consensual oral sex, unwanted touching, um, flashing, being forced to view pornography or any sort of sexual content, um, taking or distributing sexual images. And since we're talking about kids today, kids cannot consent to any sort of um, sexual contact. So anything pertaining with a child would be sexual abuse. Okay. You say anything pertaining to a child. Uh, What is the age in Virginia? Because I understand it's different in various states. So what's the age in Virginia? That is, it has a complicated answer. So technically the age of consent in Virginia is 18. But Virginia does have what would be like an age proximity law. So that would mean that like a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old could consent to having sexual contact with each other. Um, But it would have to be within that two-year age range. And once somebody is over 18, someone under 18 cannot consent to sexual contact with somebody over 18. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. How do you talk to children and teens about sexual assault? I know that's a very open-ended question. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. Sure. I think just uh, <laughs> with the, the question kind of depends on um, who's talking to the child. The, the folks that are on this, you know, on this podcast today, we all have different roles and we speak to children in different uh, times. So at the child advocacy center, we're talking with children and teenagers that have been sexually assaulted. Um, Catherine, for example, would be talking with them while they're in mental health services. I think parents, guardians, um, folks in the community, educators that are talking with kids about preventing sexual assault, um, they talk with them in a, in a different way. I think the commonality that we all have is that we should be talking about it. It shouldn't be a secret. Yeah, I think that's really important what Michelle said is so in prevention, the unit that I work in, we do the body safety program. 
Um, mm-hmm. So we go into the schools and we educate kids on what child abuse is, how to recognize it, how to prevent it, and then knowing who their safe adults are. And a lot of times parents ask, you know, well, what can I do? Because a lot of times they just expect that the schools are teaching them this information, which they're not. Um, and the best piece of advice we can give for parents and caregiver, caregiver, caregivers, excuse me, is teach your children the anatomically correct terms for their body parts. Um, that is the best way to sort of arm your children to protect themselves at the youngest age. Because if your children are not using the anatomically correct terms for their body parts, sometimes they are disclosing to you and you may not know. Because if they're saying something to you and you don't know because they're not using the right terms for their body, um, sometimes a child has disclosed and then and then you're not even aware of it. How do you yeah, talk I, to really young children? I'm sorry, Catherine, I cut you off. Well, well, I was going to echo what Sam was saying, but it does kind of go into the question you just asked, Kendra, is I love and I always recommend and I always use the anatomical terms with kids because we need to teach them the language to communicate about their experiences. Yep. But I also feel like from a mental health perspective, it can really decrease shame. Like, you know, we, we would never call give a like a hand a nickname because mm-hmm. we're not ashamed of having hands. We're not ashamed right. of having feet. Um, so we can also decrease shame about talking about the experience and talking about bodies and existing bodies um, by just calling things what they are. Um, And that is my approach to talking with young kids about sexual abuse too. Like Michelle mentioned, by the time kids get to me, they're entering mental health treatment because the abuse has already occurred. So the big, bad, scary thing that parents and families are and, you know, kids are scared of, it already happened. So I'm not doing that kid a service by denying it or skirting around it. Rather, I learn the language they speak whether it be through play and art, and then I teach them the language they need to communicate and tell their story. At what age do they start to understand what has happened to them, Catherine, if they are in the, where they're seeing you? Do they understand what's happened if they're, say, eight? Mm-hmm. As yeah, just I a team who probably what has happened and has the language. I think kids of all ages understand what happens to them. They just understand what happened in different ways. Um, but I think even like the really young kids, like four-year-olds or five-year-olds, they understand that they were scared. They understand that they were uncomfortable. They understand that maybe they were asked to keep a secret or something felt icky. They might not have the language or the words to quite explain why what happened happened or how it's impacting them, but they understand that something was uncomfortable. And that's how they ended up coming to us because someone along the line noticed something, noticed that this child was acting different or just wasn't quite themselves. So something was impacting them. What are some of the long-term effects of childhood sexual abuse? Michelle? Um, I can talk, I can talk a little bit about about that. Um, I think (laughs) um, it's, you know, it's the things that people typically think of, you know, higher rates of um, addiction, uh, dangerous behavior, um, suicidal ideation, suicide, all of those kinds of, um, things. But there's also this perspective that I've learned about in my career about how, um, childhood trauma and adversity impacts a child's ability to grow up and to 
do things that we do, uh, folks that aren't, you know, maybe haven't been abused, such as get medical attention when they need it, have the kind of coping skills to deal with different types of things happening in their lives. Um, there's research out there that shows, uh, you know, adults that are disclosing abuse as children, they're less likely to own a house. They're less likely to have a bank account. They're less likely to own a car. And it's all coming back to they had this experience, but were never able to move forward and learn coping skills to help them get through the journey of life. And I think that that's why it's so important that when a child discloses there should be an immediate response because that's where you can intervene and truly make a difference. Okay, so what is the best treatment for childhood sexual abuse? I mean, I think we would all agree, obviously, like children need, you know, support and therapy. I think coming from the Department of Family Services, like we truly believe the child needs to be believed um, because so many of these children aren't believed um, or they're dismissed or, you know, because the alleged abuser or perpetrator is the the breadwinner of the household, or there's going to be consequences if they come forward. Um, and we just know how important it is to to believe the victim. Um, so I, I'd say that is definitely up there with obviously the supportive services. So how do you help a child overcome this? There are some adults who this happened to last week when they were 42 that still can't process and may not be able to ever process? How, do, how does a child, how do you help a child overcome this? I, one of the things that I've seen happen at our agency is the intervention with the child, but also the intervention with what we call the non-offending caregiver. So talking with a non-offending caregiver about what to expect, answering questions that they have about the things that Sam was just talking about, financial insecurity, you know, where am I going to live? How am I going to feed my family if the offender is in jail? Empowering the people that are responsible for caring for the children really impacts the children's ability to participate in therapy, to follow up with recommended services, to um, be a part of the courtroom process if that happens. And so I think for us, we, we focus on the child for sure. But we've also uh, at Safe Spot put a lot of emphasis on what we call the family advocacy program, because it's the it's the grownups that are the ones taking the kids to the therapy appointments. And, you know, uh, us as professionals, we see them for an hour, two hours, but they're with these non-offending caregivers 24 hours a day. So they have, they, the caregivers should be empowered on how to handle what's happening and what's going to happen next. Yep. And we also recommend those caregivers get, and Michelle knows this because we get a lot of referrals at uh, DSVS for the parents to get their own mental health support because this is a trauma for the kid, but it's also a trauma for the parent. And a lot of these parents may also have their own trauma history. They might have experienced sexual abuse when they were kids. And the sexual abuse healing journey happens in phases and stages throughout your life. So if we're working with a five year old, we're going to do a lot of play therapy. We're going to give them the language and the tools to talk about their emotions and the age-appropriate coping tools. And they might feel like they're in a place to discharge and they're good and they're ready to take those tools out of therapy and into the outside world. 
And then we might hit another phase when they hit puberty and now their bodies are changing and that might bring up some of that sexual trauma stuff. So we might want to get them back into therapy again later when they're older and they're dating and they're becoming sexually active, that might bring up some stuff. And when they become parents, that's a time when we see another phase where I usually recommend folks like keep an eye on yourself. Like once you, when you're becoming parents one day, this might come up again because you're starting to see kids in a new light. You're starting to see yourself in a new light because you're seeing just how truly innocent and, and tiny and vulnerable kids are. Or then of course, if something, if you know, the worst thing happens to your kid, that's another time to get that trauma therapy. So I think that healing you're asking about, Kendra, happens in phases and stages throughout the entire lifetime. And it might look a little different each time, but the healing process isn't necessarily one and done. Okay. Do do children have to have parental consent or parental presence to get therapy? If I'm 12 and I know what's happened and I understand it and I realize that I need some help getting through this do I need my parents to say yes and bring me or can I reach out to you guys on my own? I believe in Virginia, the age of consent to consent to your own mental health services is 14 years old. Okay. Um, at DSVS, we also need child consent at any age. Like if a parent brings a kid in at 12, we also need the child's consent. But to consent to your own services in Virginia, I believe is 14 And now that we can offer telehealth services, that does help us overcome some of the barriers that a lot of younger teens have, which is not being able to drive themselves to therapy. Okay, understood. Is therapy different depending on your gender or is it the same? Uh, I would say based on gender is not a big determining factor in how I handle therapy or how I interact with the kid. Um, Therapy is different from person to person. And some of the big things that are going to come into that are going to be the age and like developmental um, age of the child will determine what sort of interventions I use, the language I use. But really, it's person to person, more so than gender. Okay. And I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about facility dogs, because both Sam and Michelle, you both have worked with facility dogs. In fact, you are the handlers for facility dogs. Sam, can you talk to me a little bit about what Ryland Department of Family Services Facility Dog, what their role is, what they do, the training they go through to prepare for this? Sure. Um, so Ryland is a four-year-old half lab, half golden retriever. Um, she's from Canine Companions, um, and she was placed with us in May of 2021. Um, I have to give a shout out to Michelle because if it wasn't for Michelle, I would not have Ryland. Um, I learned all about <laughs> Canine Companions from Michelle. Um, so I went to training for two weeks with Rylan. Rylan had two years of training prior to that. Um, and we use Rylan in a couple different ways. Um, primarily she's part of our body safety program that I mentioned before. Um, Mm -hmm. so when we go into the schools and we're teaching children about child abuse, obviously it's going to elicit some disclosure, some concerning comments. We're at a school for about a week at a time, and anytime a student makes any type of concerning comment, whether verbally, anything with their body language that is concerning, or any school staff, maybe a counselor, a psychologist, a social worker who says, hey, we'd really like you to follow up with this child. Um, we then meet with all those children in a trauma-informed space, and we'll mm-hmm. talk to them. You know, hey, we noticed during body safety, you asked this question, um, and we meet with them with Rylan there. 
Um, and then if we've decided that comment does warrant a call to Child Protective Services, we'll move forward. Or if maybe they were just asking a question, they saw something on YouTube, they thought they were just being funny in class, et cetera, we sort of assess what do we do with this comment. Um, and then we use Rylan for some other ways. We partnered with our Neighborhood Networks program and we provided a grief group last year. Um, and that was really re- rewarding. Um, we had two different sessions for older and younger kids. It was a six-week session. And then Rylan also goes to court, both in criminal and civil court hearings. Um, we have our first criminal court um, actually in Prince William, and that's going to be in September. And then we have another criminal court case in January. Um, so we provide court um, support. And what's different between like a facility dog and a therapy dog or a comfort dog is that facility dogs can actually go into the courthouse and sit in the witness box, um, which is really nice because obviously we have a lot of kids who have suffered trauma and just going to court is very traumatic for them to have to sit up there by themselves, but to have an actual a dog that can sit with them and help them um, and sort of be be there as a support to them so they're not sitting across from their abuser by themselves. Um is a really nice resource and tool for them. Um, so that's primarily how we have been using Ryland for the last two years. And Michelle, what about Virgil? How have you guys been using Virgil at Safe Spot? <laughs> so Virgil uh, was working at Safe Spot since November of 2020. He's actually my second facility dog. I had um, Pecos. He was the first facility dog in the criminal justice system in Virginia, and he worked for 10 years. Um, and he, um, but both of them were kind of like, uh, what Sam was talking about. They have very specialized training to be part of situations where just everyone in the area just needs to like take a breath and calm down. So it is, it is for the victim. It's also for the people that are observing the, um, court case. It's also for people that are observing the interview, a calm dog, whether you like dogs or not, elicits a calmness in you because if a dog is sounding, is sleeping soundly next to you or in a room with you, a person tends to think, okay, this, this area is safe. There's nothing really going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Virgil primarily worked in safe spot in forensic interviews and therapy sessions. He had a client caseload, so he would have his <laughs> his sessions every week. And he also has been um, at the courthouse uh, with children um, when they're having to testify. Um, and I think the other thing, if I didn't mention this, it's it's also been incredibly helpful for the people that work in this field. Um, I think you know when Sam goes into the schools. And, and does presentations for specific groups of children, I guarantee you that there are teachers and administrators yep. coming and, and petting and talking. Um, I don't know if any, any, anybody listening has been to the courthouse, but it is a scary place to go through. And um, even sometimes the security, the, the sheriffs that are over there, will you know, they know Ryland, they know Virgil. Um, so it's just something that, I feel like makes a difference, a positive difference, and what is general, generally a really negative situation. 
Catherine, we need to lobby for a DSVS facility dog. I know, I want one. Yes. I want a you should. Dog. Everyone needs one, absolutely. So, Catherine, domestic and sexual violence services counseling for sexual abuse is short-term. What does that mean? What does short-term mean? So short-term means that we typically uh, provide up to 10 sessions per person which means for this population where we're talking about the kids, we are not always the best fit. Um, So we will work with the parents um, oftentimes. So a lot of the cases that are more appropriate for safe spot, maybe because of the child's age, there being a lot of attachment trauma, it being a caregiver incest case, um, which would be significant attachment trauma. Those kids aren't going to benefit as much from DSVS services because it's going to take significantly more time for them to warm up to the process, for them to open up, to be vulnerable. And we don't want to get those kids to that point. And it takes, you know, nine weeks and then the next week we're saying goodbye. It's your last session, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. But we will work with the parents in those cases. And then we will coordinate with the kids therapist if that's something that's helpful to make sure the whole family is getting the support that they need to heal. So, Michelle, is that how Safe Spot services or one way the Safe Spot services are different from DSVS? You guys do more intense, longer term therapy with children who've been sexually assaulted? We, we do have, um, we do this similar modalities with DSVS, but we don't have a cap on the amount. Um, mm-hmm. and we primarily focus on the children. Um, we don't do the, the mental health, individual mental health sessions with the caregivers. Um, I think Catherine brought up an excellent point when it is, you know, a case of incest or something like that. Um, those types of cases have more, um, components and they do take longer. Um, our therapy services, I, I think, a you know, when people think about therapy, they think, okay, well, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. But in a, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, folks are able to make it through the, the trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the modality that we use, um, and, and finish out and graduate. To Catherine's point, we do follow with them and make sure that if anything comes up or if they have any questions or they do need other services like medication management or things like that, we'll connect them. But we are really focusing on the children and the trauma. Okay. I read this quote on Safe Spot's website that says, healing doesn't mean the damage never existed. It means the damage no longer controls our lives. That seems really appropriate for this discussion. And also, it sounds like the perfect way to wrap up this edition of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Catherine, Sam, and Michelle for joining us. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. That's 703-360-7273. Or visit fairfaxtiny.gov and search for domestic and sexual violence. Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia government. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcasts 